Let's stand together for the reading of God's Word. I'll read in, uh, from Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 41, part 2 of uh, Peter's sermon at Pentecost. You'll see underlined there the verses of focus today, verses 22 through 36. But uh, as I said, I'll read all the way from verse 1 through to verse 41. Please listen carefully because this is God's holy and infallible word. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven, as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues, as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues, as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused, because everyone heard them speak in his own language. Then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all these who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. So they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one, to, to one another, whatever could this mean? Others mocking said, they are full of new wine. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. For these are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they shall prophesy. I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath. Blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. You have taken by lawless hands, have crucified, and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. For David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope, for you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne, he, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of The Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh 
see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He poured out this which you now see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And with many other words he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. And thus ends the reading of God's Word. Amen. 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 Please be seated. It's beautiful to consider the beginning of the church, the work of God from heaven, these saints there that first Pentecost day, and to see the church advancing throughout history as the Lord Jesus Christ still reigns and continues to pour out His Spirit upon His people. It's instructive for us uh, to look back and to see what happened. As you know, we looked uh, last week at the first section there where Peter quoted from Joel and taught them some important things about how the outpouring of the Spirit is occurring there in those last days that were at that time. And that the outpouring of the Spirit was unto prophesying, unto the Word of God going forth from all types of people all over the whole world. That would be the work of the Spirit poured out, is the Word of God in the minds and on the lips of the people that God calls to Himself. Of course, we see this great miracle of tongues that was given to the church where they could all uh, suddenly speak in other tongues, other languages that they didn't know. In addition, Peter lets them know that there's some things coming. These signs in heaven and on earth that they would be seeing in their lifetime leading up to that great and awesome day of the Lord. Of course, for the Jewish people at that time, that would have been pregnant, filled up with the concept of God's coming wrath upon Israel. And he tells them, all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So that's where we are. They have received that word, and now we move into this section. And today, Peter turns and looks at Jesus Christ. You want to know how to be saved, you have to look to Jesus Christ. And this is what he does. And today we'll look at Peter's description of Christ's life, which, if you just read through verse 22, you might not think about it that way, but that's really a summary of Christ's life in verse 22. Look at how Peter describes Christ's death in verse 23 and Christ's resurrection in verses 24 through 32, which is more extended because he goes through Psalm 16 and really opens up Psalm 16 for them to see how the Old Testament through David, the prophet, predicted that the Messiah would be resurrected. Then we'll look at Peter's description of Christ's exaltation in verses 33 through 35 which includes, again, David the prophet seeing Christ enthroned and hearing the Father say to the Son, Sit thou at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool, until I put your enemies under your feet. And then Peter's summary to 
bring it home that Jesus is the Lord and the Christ for the people of Israel. And so then some questions for us to consider together. And then next week we'll look at part three. It's really the people's response to Jesus. The response to the knowledge of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and the outworking of God's plan in history in that moment. And they come to see it, and they understand what's going on by God's grace. And we'll see how they respond. And we'll try to learn from that together next week. So, first of all, verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. So I want us to note here how Peter summarizes Christ's earthly ministry. He tells us what Jesus did with these descriptors and how God attested to Jesus the man via these great works and how God used all of these great works to make Jesus of Nazareth known through all the land. We even saw it in our reading today, didn't we? He raises, one of them anyways, he raises Lazarus from the dead Pharisees are unhappy, and they say, look, the whole world is going after him, right? So he says, men of Israel, hear these words. And so this is transitioning from his first point that he has made from Joel, and he takes his hearers into preaching Christ. He's already informed them what they are observing is the fulfillment of Joel chapter 2. The Holy Spirit is being poured out upon all types of people unto the proclamation of God's word by all types of people. And there will be celestial and earthly wonders and signs leading up to the great and awesome day of the Lord, just like Jesus already taught them in Luke chapter 21. We looked at that. I referenced that last week. All of these amazing events, these startling events, these get-your-attention types of heavenly and earthly signs and wonders and events leading up to the great and awesome day of the Lord. Peter informs them, hey, look, you're living in the last days of the old covenant dispensation. The last days of what? We looked at that last week. The last days of the old covenant dispensation, bringing the whole Sinai covenant, restorative law fulfilled in Christ. The temple will be destroyed, not one stone left on another. It's going to be a terrible time for those who are unrepentant. It's going to be a terrible time for the Jews who just march forward ignoring Jesus Christ, who just march forward and do not repent of their role in his death. It's going to be a terrible day for them. And there's bloodshed all across the nation. But Peter tells them, all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You can be forgiven of your sins. Return to the Lord. But now Peter transitions from these points to preach Christ to them, as I've already said, to show them the only way of salvation. Everyone who wants to be saved must look to Christ. All preaching of salvation must center upon Christ himself, his person, his teachings, his works. And Peter points this first century Jewish audience to Jesus, not Brothers and sisters, not just to a set of ethics or ideas or rules, but to a person. Our faith is in Christ, so we fix our attention upon him. And every word that we study, every law that we learn, we must hear it as the voice of Jesus, our Savior. I also want us to see here Peter's boldness. He continues with this same approach. He says, hear these words. He's getting their attention so they understand this is significant. He calls him Jesus of Nazareth. As we've talked about before, Nazareth was known as a a poor and an ignorant region. And yet Peter calls Jesus by the description that would quickly clarify Christ's identity. And I'm saying Christ, but... I think it's important to notice that here at this point in the sermon, he's yet to call Jesus Christ. He's calling him Jesus at this point in time. Peter is not ashamed to be associated with any detail of the life of Christ. 
If you take that one earthly thing about Christ's history that would be that would stand out likely as very embarrassing, if you will, to Jews overall would be to be from Nazareth. Does anything good come from Nazareth? It was not a respected place. But he holds him up as Jesus of Nazareth. Because who Jesus is, is worth adoring and loving in every regard. None of it's by chance. Poole says, For so Pilate had called our Savior through contempt in his superscription on the cross. Pilate called him Jesus of Nazareth. And that they might certainly know of whom he spoke, and that he was not now, as formerly, ashamed to own him. He mentions our Savior under that name here. So Peter, as we looked at last week, he's not ashamed anymore. He knows who Jesus is now. He has been brought to faith in who Christ is. And in that faith, he's able to rise up under the work of the Spirit with boldness to speak the truth of God in any setting at any cost. That's really what boldness is, is to speak and live for Christ in every setting, no matter the consequences. This is what boldness grants to us is we're not afraid of the threats of this world. We just do God's will. Peter goes on and tells them that Jesus of Nazareth is a man. It's a very simple word. He was not a woman. He was not anything in between, because there's not anything in between, which sadly needs to be stated in today's world. He was also not a specter, somehow giving only the appearance of a man. He wasn't just looking like a man while he was here, which is one of the heresies, major heresies, right? Jesus was a man. He came in the flesh. In fact, to deny the full humanity of Jesus Christ is the hallmark of the spirit of Antichrist. This is from 1 John 4. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits whether they are of God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. And here's the test. By this you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is now already in the world. So the spirit of Antichrist was already in the world then when John wrote those words in the first century. And the hallmark of the spirit of Antichrist is denying the real humanity of Jesus Christ. It's not the only thing, but it's the hallmark. Further, Peter goes on, he was a man attested by God to the Jews. God sent Christ and and approved of him and proved proved his approval through these signs and miracles and wonders. So this idea of attested God proved to the people that he approved of Jesus. And this is a very condescending thing for God to do for these people who had turned their backs on him. God, the Father, went out of his way to demonstrate to the Jewish nation who Jesus is. He provided this proof via great works that Jesus did. Matthew Henry said, He was censured and condemned by men, but he was approved of God. God testified his approbation of his doctrine by the power he gave him to work miracles. I think it's worth just asking ourselves by way of application here, whose approval matters the most to you? Do you seek God's approval or do you seek the approval of men? There's three words here. Miracles, wonders, and signs, and they all point to the same set of activities that Jesus did, just under three different 
headings, three different descriptions. The, the word miracles there has to do with strengths and powers and abilities and wonders, uh, or a prodigy, a portent. Uh, it carries with it the idea of pointing to something, kind of like the next word, signs, which is more obvious. It's a, an unusual occurrence transcending typical things that's pointing to something. It's a sign pointing to something else. Calvin says, he calls miracles by these three names, and because God does show forth his power in them after a new and unusual, unwanted means unusual sort, or doth at least procure greater admiration, they are for good causes called great works. For we are commonly more moved when any extraordinary thing does happen. In which respect they are also called wonders, because they make us astonished. And for this cause are they called signs, because the Lord will not have men's minds to stay there, but to be lifted up higher as they are referred unto another end. He put in three words to the end he might the more extol Christ's miracles and enforce the people by his heaping and laying on of words together to consider the same. So Peter wants them to call to mind the things that they've heard about Jesus. He wants them to remember the claim that he was born of a virgin. The idea that he was able to bring to their wits end all the vaunted teachers when he was at age 12 in the temple. The idea that he was able to heal every kind of disease that was brought to him, including raising the dead on multiple occasions. Peter wants them to remember the things that Jesus did and that he walked on water. He spoke to the weather and made it do his command. He was able to cause a fig tree to wilt right before their eyes. And he was able to cast out every kind of demon. He demonstrated all of this before their eyes. And he was famous because of it. And Peter wants them, through these words, to start having those memories coming to mind of what they had heard about Jesus. And this was because God was proving to them that he approved of Jesus. Look also here that God did these great things through Christ. And this kind of introduces a, um, a noteworthy uh, idea that flows through this text. The source of divine power in Christ's miracles, wonders, and signs. What is it? Well, the emphasis here is that God in heaven, God the Father, worked through Christ, the perfect man who had perfect faith to do these great works on earth during Christ's life on earth. The emphasis is not upon Christ's divinity in these great works. The emphasis is upon his humanity, his faith in the Father and the Father's working through him to do these great miracles. And when we look ahead, in the, as we go through the book of Acts, we will see many of the same kind of wonderful miracles that God does through the apostles. Would anyone claim that the apostles had the power in themselves? No. The power comes from God through the apostles. And this is the emphasis here. Christ, as the second Adam, the perfect man, had access to everything from heaven working through him. God did that to attest to him as the perfect man, as the second Adam. You see that. It's by no means minimizing Christ's divinity and his equal power, but it's focusing on his humanity. God did these great things through Christ. And where did he do it? Did he do it in a corner? No, he did it in their midst, as you yourselves know. It's almost as if Peter can see some faces in the crowd Faces that perhaps he was running from in the past. Faces that he remembers were present at those great miracles. He's like, as you know, they know what Jesus did. This is no mystery. He shouldn't have to prove this to them. He's referencing the same newspaper headlines, if you will, that they've all been reading for three years. <clears throat> He's not giving them any new information Jesus of Nazareth 
was a celebrity. Everyone knew his name. Not everyone liked him. Not everyone loved him. But everyone knew his name in that part of the world at that time. Bach says the audience well knows that such a display took place. The reputation of Jesus performing miraculous works is something Josephus mentions later in the century in his famous remarks about Jesus, where he says that Jesus was a doer of remarkable, strange works. The Jewish traditions believe that Jesus was a magician of sorts, also attests to this understanding while viewing the source of Jesus' power differently. So the idea here is the works that Jesus did were so striking, so astonishing, that they could not be denied. They spread everywhere. Even Josephus, even the Jews, they all came up with their own explanations for it because they couldn't ignore it away. So Peter now has their attention focused upon Jesus of Nazareth. Yet notice something here. Peter has stepped back and pointed to what God the Father has done through Jesus and how Jesus has, through this, become famous, well-known throughout Israel. Peter's not actually, if you think about it, spoken of anything done by Christ yet. Now, indirectly, the signs and wonders and miracles, yes. But the actual words there is what the Father did. That's what Peter's looked at. This Jesus of Nazareth is now held up before their eyes, The man attested by God via great works is now before their attention. Jesus of Nazareth, attested by God. Next, going on, he tells of his death. Peter says, him, Jesus of Nazareth, being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. Him. So Peter continues to focus upon Jesus of Nazareth, the man approved by God, the one everyone knows of, the one everyone's heard of. We see two things here. We see an act of God and we see an act of men. So the cross, the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ is described here by Peter in two ways, an act of God and an act of men. Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. Jesus of Nazareth was delivered to death by God. That's what this text says. The same one who approved, like just a few, maybe even the same breath Peter's saying this. The same God who approved of Jesus delivered him to death. The same one who worked Great works through Jesus. God's determined purpose and foreknowledge authored Jesus being delivered unto death. And not just any death, but described here as lawless crucifixion. Matthew Henry says, He delivered him to death, not only permitted him to be put to death, but gave him up, devoted him. This is explained in Romans 8.32 where it says, He delivered him up for us all. And yet he was approved of God. And there was nothing in this that signified the disapproving of him. For it was done by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God in infinite wisdom and for holy ends, which Christ himself concurred in and in the means leading to them. Thus, divine justice must be satisfied. Sinners saved. God and man brought together again. And Christ himself glorified. Think about it. Have you ever heard anyone say when they argue against the perfect and complete and comprehensive sovereignty of God and they say, well, that's not my God. My God would not be that way. When you think of various horrible things that have happened through history, right? My God, my God wouldn't do that. Well, what's the most wicked act of history? What's the most the most sinful thing that has ever occurred in this earth. The crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Nothing more wicked could ever be done by mankind. And it was foreordained by God's plan. All things are foreordained by God without exception. And God is righteous 
and pure and good in all his thoughts, all his plans, and all his works. Amen. Next, it was an act of men. Him also applies to this clause, so not just the first clause, but him, Jesus, you have taken by lawless hands and crucified and put to death. Now this is a very powerful preaching technique. Using the word you. Very powerful. And Peter does it right here. And he indicts them with a very clear indictment. You have taken by lawless hands, have crucified, and put to death. So the sinful acts of men are not excused at all by the all-encompassing sovereignty of God. Peter indicts them. They are guilty. He just talked about God's foreknowledge and all of this being according to his predetermined plan. And he also indicts them. He emphasizes both the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of the lawless murderers. He calls them lawless hands. Both the Jews and the Romans are indicted by Peter here, but the emphasis is upon you. It's the people he's talking to, and this is one aspect of biblical preaching. If your preacher's not saying you very often, now we all, it's important to say we, because your preacher's a sinner too. But there's also this thing here where the preacher needs to say you. Peter is speaking to the assembled men of Israel and he tells them, you did this to Jesus of Nazareth. You have taken Jesus by lawless hands, men of Israel. You had him crucified, inhabitants of Jerusalem. You had him put to death, men of Judea. You, men of Israel, did this to Jesus of Nazareth. A man approved by God to you in your midst. You saw it with your own eyes by miracles, signs, and wonders. You murdered him. Matthew Henry says, In them it was an act of prodigious sin and folly. It was fighting against God to persecute one whom he approved as the darling of heaven. And fighting against their own mercies to persecute one that was the greatest blessing of this earth. Neither God's designing it from eternity, nor his bringing good out of it unto eternity, would in the least excuse their sin. For it was their voluntary act and deed from a principle morally evil, and therefore they were wicked hands with which you have crucified and slain him. It is probable that some of those were here present who had cried, crucify him, crucify him, or had been otherwise aiding and abetting in the murder, and Peter knew it. However, it was justly looked upon as a national act, because done both by the vote of the great council and by the voice of the great crowd. It is a rule. That which is done publicly by the greater part we attribute to all. He charges it particularly on them as parts of the nation on which it would be visited, the more effectually to bring them to faith and repentance, because that was the only way to distinguish themselves from the guilty and discharge themselves from the guilt. So Peter's only hope of deliverance is to repent and be baptized. The apostles, none of them were going to get free from this judgment. Every one of them is brought into the guilt of crucifying Jesus Christ. All of them. And you too. And me. What would you have done if you were there? Right? Uh, okay. We would have run away, probably would have been hollering, crucify him, crucify him. Don't know, do you? So Peter has now set before their attention Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved by God, and Peter has now indicted them. He says, you murdered this same Jesus by lawlessness. Note again, Jesus thus far in Peter's sermon is being acted upon or acted through. God acted through Jesus. God approved Jesus. The Jews murdered Jesus with the help of the Romans. So far, there's no reference to actions of Jesus. Jesus as the subject and some verb after it. Hasn't happened yet. And this idea that the Messiah would die was very, very strange to the Jews. But again, he hasn't equated Jesus with the Messiah yet. First, he's telling them what has happened to Jesus and then after he tells the whole story, he's going to say, oh, and he's your Messiah. Okay? 
It was the idea that the apostles did not understand until after Jesus rose from the dead. They didn't get it either. They didn't understand the death and resurrection idea until after he had come back to life. So Peter is laying out the reality of their Messiah before the Jews, before he calls him Messiah. Christ's resurrection, verses 24 through 32. Hear God's word again. Whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. And then in verse 32, you see, this Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. So he's very simple fact. Jesus was raised from the dead. But on this point, notice that Peter goes to Scripture. There's a great need for these Jews to understand that their Messiah had to die and come back from the dead. He doesn't use any Scripture in the prior sections to justify the wonders or the attestation of God or the death of Jesus. All prophets died. Jews don't have a problem with a dead prophet. This is something new. So you'll see this long section here where Jesus, excuse me, Peter goes to Psalm 16. So going on. For David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. There's the quote from Psalm 16. Peter goes on. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ. There it is. First time. Peter says it. Verse 30. He would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne... He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ. There it is. Now he just puts it out there for him. The resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. So Peter doesn't stop with his indictment against the Jews and Romans. He just keeps rolling in his sermon. He puts it there and he keeps moving. He takes their attention to more work of God from heaven. Work done in Jesus of Nazareth by God in heaven. You see, I mean, Peter could have stopped and just said, oh, you guys are just, you know, he could have preached a lot longer about the horrific nature of their sin to, to kill Jesus, to murder Jesus. But he doesn't. He just goes on because he's got a point to make. And their sin's part of the story, but it's not the whole story. Jesus is the whole story and his victory over sin. So he doesn't get bogged down there. Uh, and and I, there's a lot that deserves to be said, but at this moment, they needed this, this sermon to be finished in its length to its point and striking them with the truth along the way, putting it all together. So, he keeps going. He points to more work of God in heaven, work that God does upon Jesus. So, what does he say? Very simple. Whom God raised up. God the Father resurrected Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth from the dead, distinguishing Jesus from every other great prophet in Jewish history. This is different. Every other prophet had died, but no other prophet had ever been resurrected. Other prophets had been given power to raise the dead, but no other prophets had ever been raised up from the dead like Jesus. Matthew Henry says, whom God raised up, the same that delivered him to death delivers him from death and thereby gave a higher approbation of him than he had done by any other of the signs and wonders wrought by him or by all put together. This, therefore, he insists most largely upon. So God delivered him and to death and God delivered him from death. It's pointing to the work of the Father. Really, this sermon Yes, it's about Jesus, but can you see so far what we're focusing on is the work of the Father, the work of the Father, the work of the Father. God loosed the pains of death, we're told. 
When he raised him from the dead, it's described as loosing the pains of death from Jesus of Nazareth when he raised him up from the dead. This goes back to why it is critical to say that Jesus came in the flesh, that Jesus was a man. Because his physical body laid there in that grave dead. The blood was congealed. There was no electrical activity in the brain or the heart. And Jesus, as a man, couldn't raise himself up from the dead. But he knew that his father would. He trusted that his father would not leave his soul in Hades or his body to corruption. That's what God did when he raised him up from the dead. He brought his soul and his body back together into his glorified body. He was dead, y'all. We talk about it a lot, but it is really important. Jesus was dead, and God raised him to life. And that is why if anyone talks about him appearing to die on the cross or just appearing to be a man, that they are spirit of antichrist. Because it was not possible that he should be held by it. Now those are really encouraging words. Death could not hold Jesus down. Death was defeated, so death by no means could hold on to Jesus. Bach says the abyss can no more hold the redeemer than a pregnant woman can hold the child in her body. Jesus was coming out of that grave. This aspect of Messiah's identity as the one who would be raised up from the dead by God was completely foreign to the mainstream Jewish mind. It was just not there. Peter describes to them the reality of what has happened with Jesus. And so far, Peter has not claimed clearly that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah directly. He's just telling them about Jesus. He's describing his life, his death, and his resurrection. But now... Now, at this point, as he goes to this Old Testament scripture to justify the idea of the resurrection, Peter begins to reveal to the Jews that he believes Jesus is the Messiah. It's when he quotes the Old Testament that he shows it to them. I won't read the scripture again. Uh, They're on page 8 of your notes. Uh, Let's talk about what Peter said about Psalm 16. First, he makes it clear that Psalm 16 is not primarily about David, who is dead, and who's buried in his tomb, they could go and visit David's tomb if they wanted to. He said, it's here with us to this day. Peter calls David a prophet who knew that the Messiah would be resurrected because David knew, quote, that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. And this is where he calls him the Christ. Now, this should ring a bell um, for Foothills Christian Assembly here this morning. We've actually been looking at this promise um, this, this morning and the prior Sunday at uh, Christian Instruction Hour. 2 Samuel 7, 11 through 16. This is what Peter's referencing that David knew that informed David's prophecy in, in Psalm 16. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. Who's speaking? Nathan, right? When your days... Are over and you rest with your ancestors. I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. So this is what Peter is pointing to, is this great promise that was given to David's family. David's kingdom would be established forever. The throne would be established forever. So Peter goes on to make it clear. David was prophesying about this Jesus of Nazareth. And there's the connection. This Jesus is the one David was talking about. Peter tells the Jews by saying that, that Jesus is their Messiah. They murdered their Messiah, but God raised him up according to his word. But even here, still at this point, Jesus the Christ is being acted upon. Peter's yet to point to actions done by Jesus, with Jesus as the subject of the sentence. Jesus was raised up from the dead by the Father, and Peter, by God's inspiration, knew that it was necessary to take this Jewish crowd 
to the Old Testament scriptures that point to the resurrection of the Messiah. What about Christ's exaltation? That's where Peter takes them next. You can see where he's taking them, just like our catechism does. He's going from his life to his death to his resurrection, and now he talks about his exaltation. And there's a reason for this. It's going to all come full circle. Verses 33 through 35. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He poured out this which you now see and hear. That's Jesus. Jesus is alive. Jesus is at work. Jesus is still acting. Going on. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Because you know when you, when you kill a guy, you figure that's going to be it, right? And these Jews need to understand that that is not true about Jesus Christ. He is alive and he is acting. And he is acting in mighty ways right now. And you can see And you can hear what Jesus Christ is doing. You thought that you would not see him working anymore. You thought you would not hear him working anymore. He is now what you see and hear working, Jesus Christ. So Peter, having equated Jesus with the Christ, goes on to declare Christ's ascension and exaltation. And the action of Christ the Messiah from and at the Father's right hand. So you can see Peter ties it all together. What they are observing is the work of Jesus of Nazareth. This man that he was talking about just a few breaths ago. This man, what he's doing. Their Messiah at the Father's right hand. What they're seeing is from him. He is at work in their midst. Their Messiah is at work in their midst. And what is this work? What is the Messiah doing from heaven? The first described work. Now, there's other things that Jesus does at the Father's right hand, right? We could talk about intercession. We could talk about advocacy, right? Because he is our advocate. If anyone sins, right? If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he's always interceding for us. But the first thing that we're given here is the act of the Messiah is that he received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. So that's in preparation for the action. He's brought to the Father's right hand. The Father and the Son had an agreement. The moment had arrived, and the Father gave the Holy Spirit to the God-man, to the second Adam, Jesus of Nazareth, who then poured out the Spirit upon them. So what was the first work? He poured out this, which you now see and hear. You see... Peter had to tell this whole story about Jesus to get to the answer to their question because this whole sermon that he's giving was meant to answer the question in their minds, the question that was begun by the outpouring of the Spirit, the curiosity that came into existence. Because they asked in verse 12, whatever could this mean? Well, Peter gives them the answer right there, very clearly what it means and what's happening. What they are seeing, what they are hearing, The miraculous gift of many people suddenly speaking a foreign language to them that they didn't know before. And the wondrous works of God being described to them by these people. And the tongues of fire, the great sound, all of it. This is the work of Jesus of Nazareth. The man attested to you by God. The one that you knew so well. The one that you murdered. The one that God raised up from the dead. The one who's now ascended at the Father's right hand and exalted on high. This man, he is pouring out the Holy Spirit upon all these people. Christ has been exalted and Peter is giving him the credit. Now, Psalm 110. Do we we love Psalm 110 here at Foothills? We do, don't we? We love all the Bible, of course. But you know Psalm 110, most quoted Old Testament scripture in the New Testament. And this is such an important point, again, that Peter goes to Scripture to prove to them what's happening from heaven. He tells them what's going on, and then he proves it from Psalm 110. For David did not ascend into the heavens, 
All right, so again, he's like, this is not about David, what you're about to hear. But he says himself, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. So David observed the father and the son and the father telling the son to sit at his right hand until the father finishes putting all the enemies of Christ under his feet. So the exaltation of Jesus was described by David. The resurrection of Jesus was described by David, but also the exaltation, the ascension to the right hand of the Father was also described by David. Because David appears that he heard the Father say to the Son, sit at my right hand. I'm looking forward to meeting David, Lord willing. Someday get a chance to talk with David. I don't know how long heaven is. I'm sure there'll be a line for David, but I look forward to talking with him and you know, having him describe these moments. Now, I want us to also see how Peter equates the outpouring of the Holy Spirit with this concept of victory. Right? That's what, that's what he does. The outpouring of the Spirit is equated with this phrase, till I make your enemies your footstool. The work of the Holy Spirit before their eyes and ears is the work of the Father and the Son in their midst beginning the process of putting all of Christ's enemies under his feet. And how are they put under his feet? Through the word of God. The gospel is what? It is the power of God. And when the gospel goes forth from our lips and our lives, darkness flees. The devil is placed under under our feet. And then his number two man. And then his number three demon. And then his number four demon. And I don't know how many there are, but it is a finite number. And the day is coming when every one of them will be locked in the bottom of the abyss. And it will occur. How long is Jesus going to sit at his father's right hand? Until every one of his enemies have been placed under his feet. Are demons the enemies or friends of Christ? Let me hear it. Enemies. So this is the beginning of the crushing of all of Christ's enemies. And Peter sums it up, says, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now notice, in the close of his sermon, he brings the conviction of their sin to them again. All the house of Israel, every Jew should believe this, based upon Christ's life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his exaltation, and the fulfillment of Old Testament scripture about their Messiah. No one else can meet these Old Testament criteria. Jesus did it. God has made Jesus both Lord and Christ. And this is simple. He is their Messiah, and he is their king. And God did this. What did Jesus do? He lived a life of perfect faithfulness. He obeyed and trusted his Father with perfect faith. He never gave way to doubt. Not once. He never had a doubt. The miracles were done by the Father working through Jesus. Jesus is the perfect man. And God had made him, has made him their Messiah and their King. That's what God did. Jesus' role in this, y'all, it's, it's, it's mysterious on the one hand, but it's very simple on the other. He had faith. He had faith. He had perfect faith every moment of his life from start to finish as the perfect man. Peter tells them, you Jews crucified your Messiah, who is now exalted above all, as both your Messiah and as your king. So, of course, the unspoken question to the Jews, there's no evidence that Peter asked them this question. The question is, what happens next? And we'll look at it next week. And part of the the message here for us as evangelists is the word of God is powerful. Who Jesus is in defining reality, that's either going to strike somebody when you tell them the truth about who he is or not. And if they are not submitted to him, if they are not loving him as king, loving him as Messiah, 
it's going to be very obvious to them when they hear. And there's going to be this urge inside of them to know what to do, to know how to respond. They're going to want to know how to respond. So one mark of God's work at someone is you don't have to spell it out to them. You don't have to teach them the sinner's prayer. Okay? Like, immediately. You can watch. And if God's working in them, it's going to be similar to what we see here. They're going, to, they're going to be some way asking you, what do I do? What do I do? That's going to be the sign of the Holy Spirit working in them. Not that we don't tell them, but you can see Peter in his wisdom from God. He waits. And they ask. And that's the next phase of Peter's sermon. We'll look at that next week. So some questions real quick to apply these scriptures to our lives today by God's grace. The first question for us is, um, are you comforted by God's sovereignty? Are you comforted by God's sovereignty? Let me, let me take it from Christ's, right, because that's what we're talking about, from his crucifixion. Let's bring it to now. So Christ suffered, right? So when we look at Christ personally, his greatest suffering was foreordained by God, right? The second Adam, his greatest suffering was foreordained by God. Do you understand that all of your pain and your suffering is according to the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. It's not just about Jesus. It's also about you and your life and everything that you're going through is according to the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. Is it, is it because the devil has a plan for you? Well, he does. But that's not why things happen to you. Things happen to you and around you and in you because of God's foreordained plan. Only God knows and foreordains your cross. He's got a cross for you, right? Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. Just like Christ's cross is foreordained according to the determined knowledge of God, determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, so is yours for each one of us. And I hope this comforts you. This should comfort you to know that the Father who loves the Son and loves all those in the Son has authored all of this that you and I are going through. Next. On the other hand, do you ever allow God's sovereignty to serve as an excuse for disobedience? I do. Now, I know it's wrong, but it's in my brain sometimes, especially when I'm disappointed and sick of praying. And I don't see the things that I desire to see. That comes to mind. Why, who cares? God's going to do what God's going to do. Why do I have to keep suffering in prayer? Right? Why don't I just forget about this painful thing and just move on? Right? Well, that's not how it works. We pray... Because Jesus told us to pray for our enemies, to love them, to treat others the way he did. And it's just, it's just the way it is. And it's that pain, actually, as you all know, that brings us closer to God. You know, why do, why do my choices even matter? That's another way you can start to be fooled. God's foreordained it all anyways. It doesn't matter what I do. I'm going to go to heaven or hell either way. I mean, it's up to him. What, what, what does it even matter? I'm just going to go have a good time and stop thinking about this. Just, ah, live on the surface. Live on the surface. Right? That's another way. I'm sure you could think of other ways that perhaps God's sovereignty, you can misuse it in your mind to, to disobey God. So, you know, like some people will say, you know, maybe the Jews might have thought they weren't guilty because God had foreordained everything. Right? we can end up thinking the same way, right? We can be tempted down that path. So watch out for that. Next. <clears throat> when you look at this text, do you see the Father's work in and through and for Jesus Christ, the man, the second Adam, as a man, working great works through Christ, as we discussed, all those miracles and wonders and signs that got everybody's attention, raising Jesus up from the dead, delivering Jesus 
to death and then delivering him from death. Exalting Jesus to his right hand. Remember when we looked at the ascension, you can see the way the language there is that somebody else pulled him up to heaven. Jesus didn't fly himself to heaven. Okay, God the Father ascended him to heaven. God the Father placed him in his right hand. He said, sit at my right hand. It's the work of the Father we're pondering together. He gave Jesus the promised Holy Spirit. There was an agreement from eternity past between the Father and the Son. And he gave him the Holy Spirit. And you know, that's attached to the promise in Psalm 2 when the Son, if he asks for it, he will be given what? All the ends of the earth and all the kings of the earth will be made his. All the nations of the earth. Of course, the Holy Spirit being poured out is how that happens. Placing all of Jesus' enemies under his feet. The Father's doing that too. The Father's doing that. The Father did some of these things. Now the Father is doing these things. This is your Father in heaven who loves you. Who's doing these things for Christ, through Christ, in Christ. Do you see Christ's work at the Father's right hand? Pouring out the Holy Spirit upon his people. And there's more we could discuss, as I mentioned before. But in this text, the focus, Jesus is pouring out the Spirit. And it's not intermittent. When we look at, especially when we look at Ezekiel, this is a river that is flowing from the throne, getting deeper and deeper ever since it started. Now, you and I, we can quench the Spirit. But the Spirit is always flowing. Now, here's a question for you. When you think of the Father... What is your soul's response today to focusing upon your Heavenly Father's work in and through and for Jesus, the man, the second Adam, what he did for your elder brother? Does this make you love the Father and desire to love and to know and obey him more? you think about this? Do you think the Father loves you like he loves Jesus? See, that's where we really bring it home. That was only for Jesus. Everything that's his is ours. So, what's the Father's heart towards you here today? Or me? Well, it is this same heart that motivated him towards Jesus. It is the same heart that he has for his son. Jesus, he has for you and me today. This is important. This gives us that boldness we need to approach the throne of grace. We're going to do that when we pray later on today. To know our Father's heart for us. Will the Father also be so kind and generous and mighty to save you? Your family? Our church? His people in the earth? Does the Father still have the same heart towards the Son? Does the Father still have the same heart towards His people? Does the Father still have the same heart towards His enemies? Yes. This should be great encouragement to us. Next. What is your soul's response to focusing upon Christ? So we think about Christ in this situation, what do we see? We see his submission to his Father in his life, in his suffering, in his death, in his resurrection, his, ex- his ascension, his exaltation. This is the story of faith and submission. When you ponder Jesus, he is gentle and lowly in heart, and he did his Father's will. Perfect faith all the way through. And when you think of his work, now exalted, of pouring out his Holy Spirit, What is your soul's response to this man? What he's been through and where he is now and what he's doing. Do you love Jesus Christ and desire to know him and to love him and to obey him? Do you desire for Christ to continue to pour out his spirit upon you? Do you desire to continue to receive the Holy Spirit at work in your life? Do you think Christ loves you like he did those first disciples? Or were they special? 
because they'd been with him and they'd seen all the miracles. No. His love for you is no greater, no less than the heart that he had and has towards those first disciples who are now with him. What God did then, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, God is still doing now. May God grant us the faith to look to Him and to trust in Him that we may um, learn how not to quench God's Spirit and not grieve God's Spirit and uh, grow up um, in the love of God. And I guess the final question is, 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 is God enough for you? If everything else is gone, if you lose everything, none of your dreams work out. Young ladies, maybe you never get married. Young men, you never get married. Whatever. Think about like the most disappointing thing you could imagine. Is God enough for you? Now and forever. So that's really what it comes down to in this life. In, in terms of being made like Jesus, being sanctified, is finding God as our all in all. And that he is more than enough for us. And anything else that we have in this life is, is such a sweet thing, whether it's relationships with our spouses or with our children or with our fellow church members, whether it's friendships or any other blessings that God gives to us in this life. All of these things have their meaning and their fulfillment only in deeper experience and knowledge of God himself. That's why we're here together. Let's pray. Almighty and gracious Heavenly Father, we are so grateful to you, Lord, for what you did in and through and for the Lord Jesus Christ. We're so thankful to you, Lord Jesus Christ, for your perfect faith that you came and you fulfilled all the terms of the covenant for us. Thank you, Father, that you kept your promise to the Son, giving Him the Spirit. And we praise you, Holy Spirit, for your continued uh, work in us, being poured out upon us from the throne of heaven. And we lift up our hearts and minds to you and our lives to you. And we ask that you would bless us uh, to continue to grow up in Christ, uh, turn away from sin, and be sanctified together, uh, and to enjoy you and to know you all the days of our lives, forever and ever. To be those ambassadors in this earth for your gospel, to be those who participate uh, in all the ways that you are destroying your enemies, Lord, in all the ways that you're advancing your kingdom. Uh, we love you. We praise you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we lift this prayer to you in Jesus' name.